I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Thomas O'Neill White. I'm Angelie Preston. We need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is What's Next. A dedicated hour to have important conversations about the issues facing the marginalized and underrepresented communities of Western New York and Southern Ontario. We're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truth. What's Next continues our mission to discuss race, equity, and the common concerns of Buffalo's East Side and beyond. In the suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. And good morning. Welcome to What's Next. In this hour, we're going to be talking about uh, an unheralded leader in the uh, fight for racial justice in this country, Franklin H. Williams. Franklin H. Williams Judicial Commission is here in New York State. Its executive director is Mary Lynn Nicholas Brewster, and she joins us this morning. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. A uh, pleasure to have you. Uh, I, I said it, unheralded Franklin H. Williams. That's one way of saying it, but I would have to say for a majority of New Yorkers, maybe even unknown, right? Correct, correct. Uh, Franklin H. Williams is an unknown figure. I'll just tell you a little bit about Please. this amazing individual. Uh, Ambassador Williams was a, a founder of the Peace Corps, co-organizer of the Peace Corps. He was a civil rights leader. He worked alongside of Thurgood Marshall as a special assistant. So he was um, in the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, working alongside of Thurgood Marshall, Marshall excuse me, uh, arguing cases before the U.S. Supreme Court, um, again, to advance the cause of civil rights. He argued cases against segregation. He argued cases against discrimination in jury selection, even before um, the Supreme Court decided, you know, its famous case in Batson versus Kentucky. Uh, we had Ambassador Williams arguing successfully that juries should be diverse and that there shouldn't be discrimination in the selection of jurors. So that's quite a quite a contrib- contribution right there. I mean, to, to think that there was a time that that wasn't part of the process. Correct, correct. And there was a part of a time where, you know, people could be struck from a jury just because of their race or gender or national origin, etc. So he was arguing those cases successfully. He also was core organizer of the Peace Corps. You know, he was not only a, a local figure in New York, he was also a national figure because he also worked in the NAACP in California. He was very successful there um, in advancing the cause of housing, you know, against housing discrimination. So he was very successful in the western part of the, the country. And then he was also important here in New York State. And then internationally, he was appointed as ambassador to Ghana. And as I mentioned, he was co-organizer of the Peace Corps. So much um, impact that he had that annually the Peace Corps has an award in his honor because that's how much of an impact he made not only um, in New York, in the nation, but also internationally. It's interesting about uh, Franklin Williams also that he was named to, in essence, be the person who oversaw the initial New York State Commission on uh, uh, when it came to judicial fairness. So much did such work that after he was done, they named the commission after him. 
Correct. So in 1988, again, you know, the then Chief Judge Sol Walkler had heard about Franklin Williams, had heard about all of the things that he had done, and knew the kind of person he was. He was considered a bridge figure, someone who could bring people together, bring people together in a room, have conversations, um, you know, really get them to know each other. And he wanted someone like that, someone who was well-known, someone who was well-respected. Again, as I mentioned, you know, his history. Sure. Um, and he wanted him to do a review of the New York State court system. Because at that time, uh, Chief Judge Sol Walkler was really concerned at the lack of diversity within the court system. And he wanted to know, well, how can we improve? What can we do? So he tasked Ambassador Williams to do this study. So in 1991, after four years of you know, doing this in-depth study of the court system, he issued a report was issued detailing you know, the circumstances in the court system that really, again, really shook the court system when it was the, um, the publication came out. It showed that there was a lack of diversity in, you know, judicial positions as well as the non-judicial workforce. They showed a lack of diversity within, you know, the upper echelons, the supervisory positions. And it showed that there were two systems of justice, okay. right? There was... Um, you know, a system of justice for the poor and for people of color and a system of justice for those who were white and had were affluent, right? So the courts that were being frequented by people of color, by the poor, were often the courts that were overburdened, under-resourced, housing court, criminal court, family court. And those courts were, were not getting the resources that they needed. Also, people who were coming into the courts were not being treated you know, the way they should, with the respect and dignity that they were should be treated with. So he put that all in a report, and as I mentioned, it really shook the court system into, you know, changing um, the way it does things, right? So one of the things that, you know, as soon as this report was issued, maybe within, I think it was issued in April, by June, the then chief judge made this commission a permanent part of the New York state court system in June of 1991. And the idea was they wanted a commission that was dedicated to promoting racial and ethnic fairness within the courts, ensuring that Ambassador Williams's legacy, which is to ensure equal justice in the courts, was going to take place. So these commission uh, conversations, they're ongoing even to this day? Even to this day. So let me tell, talk a little bit about the Please. commission. The commission is made up of 28 diverse members from throughout the state, so it is a statewide commission. In fact, it was the first such commission ever in the United States. Hmm. So New York was a leader in this, in this regard. So once the commission members, they meet um, monthly, we discuss the issues, we meet with the court leadership, we serve as an advisor to the court system on issues of race, um, of issues of justice, social justice. And um, so we do that uh, monthly where we meet and we advance the cause in different ways. Okay. In different ways. We have uh, two co-chairs. Right now we have um, the Honorable Troy K. Weber, who is an Associate Justice of the Appellate Division First Department. And our co-chair also is Honorable Richard Rivera of, the, um, of Albany. Okay. So he was recently actually appointed as statewide coordinating judge of Family Court Matters. So he was our co-chair. And so we really 
have a downstate and an upstate approach to make sure that we are addressing issues on a statewide level. Are, are they, is there a substantial difference I mean, from, from your perspective, yeah? I think, you know, everything is, it depends on local, okay. um, you know, what is happening locally. So what we had done in the past as a commission is create advisory groups for each of our judicial districts. So in New York State, we have 13 judicial districts. And so as I, you know, mentioned, you know, there are differences. What's happening in New York City is different from what's happening, say, here in Buffalo. Right. So we want to make sure that we're addressing the issues that are, you know, happening within the judicial district. So we have these advisory groups. These are uh, attorneys, judges, you know, people in the local community to tell us, well, what's going on in your community? How can we address the issues that are going on in your community? So we would fashion our, you know, we would look into how we would address those issues based on what the local individuals, those community individuals were saying was needed. Okay. Yeah. And so, and when you say those individuals, I mean, also would it be, you know, just uh, somebody who had time in the courtroom, whether they were a, a plaintiff, a defendant, or whatever the case may be, their, their concerns are funneling their way through the system as well? Definitely, definitely. One of the things that we would like to see more of is more feedback from, you know, our you know, our court users. Okay. Right. So we do have um, in different uh, districts, surveys where um, the court users, like you said, plaintiffs, defendants, those who are using the courts can give feedback. You know, how are we doing? Um, you know, what are what are their thoughts as to uh, how they're being treated in the courts? You know, how are their cases, you know, advancing in the courts? You know, are they, uh, when they approach the courts, you know, are they being treated with dignity, with respect, et cetera? So we do want to hear from um court users. But one of the things that the Williams Commission has done is also reached out to stakeholders. I'll just talk a little bit about um, our family court report that we just issued earlier this year. So the goal of our commission is to address racism and bias in the courts to advance justice within the courts. So 30 years ago, Franklin H. Williams was issuing a report in 1991 addressing what the issues were in the courts at that time. In 2020, Secretary Jay Johnson, who was the former Homeland um, Secretary of Homeland Security under the Obama administration, was tasked to do the exact same thing. He was asked to do a review of the court system, and he found, similar to Franklin H. Williams, that there were still many issues. Yes, we had made advances, we had more diverse workforce, but we still needed to do more. And he actually issued 13 recommendations okay. uh, to address those those concerns, right, including more resources, more transparency um, within the court system. Transparency? Transparency. Uh, how would that? Uh, how Meaning would, statistics. You okay. know? So, for example, um, within the last few years, there's more um, publicly available information on the court website uh, with demographic data on the judges, on the judicial workforce, right? So with more transparency, you know, we'll know whether or not we're achieving the goal of diversity. Also, with respect to, um, you know, just the the kinds of uh, 
goals that we have, right, in terms of uh, how do we advance, you know, how do we uh, promote within the court system? People need to know, like, well, exactly what does that look like? So we as the commission has, have also done programs to make that process more transparent. So, you know, if you want to promote within the court system, we have done what's called the Professional Development Academy, where we have created an academy, a workshop, a two-day intensive workshop where non-judicial staff can attend this um, this two-day workshop and learn skills, learn how to write a resume, a cover letter, how to interview. So all of this to help advance them within the court system. We're making that more transparent. We also did a program on demystifying the hiring process. Again, making that more transparent. So that's one of the things that all you right. know was discussed, transparency. But another thing that was um, discussed was also similar to what Franklin Williams found 30 years ago was our family courts our housing courts, our criminal courts, again, overburdened, under-resourced, right? So we decided we would meet with stakeholders, we would meet with family court judges, we would, you know, um, learn from them and then issue our own family court report to detail, well, what are some of the recommendations? Because that's part of our mission as well. Our mission is not only to, um, you know, again, advanced diversity within the court system. It's also to address some of those, you know, concerns that were raised 30 years ago with Ambassador Williams's report. Our guest uh, this morning on What's Next is um, Mary Lynn Nicholas Brewster. She's the executive director of the Franklin H. Williams Judicial Commission. And we're talking about Mr. Williams, who, by the way, just yesterday, October 22nd, uh, what is 106th birthday? It would have been his 106th birthday. And so we're very proud of that. And this week, actually, in honor of his 106th birthday, we are planning several programs in Buffalo. Tomorrow we will be meeting. One of the things that we do also is we meet with administrative judges throughout the state to discuss, you know, the um, diversity and other causes that are important to um, the court system, as I mentioned, locally, because we, you know, we address local issues. So we'll be doing that. We'll be meeting with the administrative judge. We will be hosting a red carpet event. So let me talk a little bit about what we did a few years ago with WNED, Toronto Public Media, who has been an excellent partner of um, the Franklin H. Williams Judicial Commission. We produced a documentary on the life of Franklin H. Williams. It's titled A Bridge to Justice, The Life of Franklin H. Williams. And so it's a 26-minute PBS documentary, an award-winning documentary. It received a silver Telly Award. It was nominated for a New York Emmy, and it's narrated by Emmy Award-winning actor Sterling K. Brown. Mm. And it's a 26-minute documentary on this amazing, amazing individual who really is a beacon of justice, right? And so along with that, we created an educational curriculum. Right. We know that Franklin H. Williams is a hidden figure. A lot of people who are listening today don't know who he is, don't know, you know, the impact that he had not only on the state, but on the nation and internationally. So we thought it would be important to create a curriculum that would be accessible to teachers from around the nation and they could incorporate, uh, you know, his 
documentary and the curriculum within their um, school curriculum. So we did that with the help of WNED, Toronto Public Media. So that curriculum is available on PBS Learning Media. Hmm. And along with that, we created a student perspectives video. So the goal is to get young people excited about Franklin H. Williams and right. all that he had done, but also to get them excited about civic being civically engaged, using their voice to make a difference. So we thought, okay, let's hear from the students. Let's have them view the documentary, work with them on the curriculums, you know, have them uh, do the discussions, questions, and do all of that with the curriculum. And then we would do recorded interviews with the students, getting their perspective on who Franklin Williams was, what impact he had, and what impact he has even on current today, right? How does he impact today? And I think one of the key, key things is that he's a bridge figure, Right. And I mentioned earlier the name of the documentary is A Bridge right. to Justice. And we talk a lot about bridge figures, about individuals who can bring people together, get them in a room, get them, you know, talking about what the issues are so that we can all move forward towards the cause of uh, justice. And he did that very well, Franklin Williams. And that's what he did throughout his life. So one of the things that the students would talk about, not only are they learning the importance of voting, the importance of jury service, you know, again, being part of the whole civic, um, being civic minded, but they learned that it's important to have conversations with people. Right. Okay. H having conversations with all people. Right. So I think that that was one of the biggest lessons. If you hear the student perspectives video, is that it's important to have dialogue. It's important to reach out to all people because you know this is not a solitary issue. Racism and bias is not you know an issue only for people of color. It's for all people. Right. So, again, you know, even Martin Luther King said, right, it's important, you know, if someone if justice is not being served one place, it's not being served at all. So we all are together in this. We all are connected in ensuring, um, you know, justice is done. So I think one of the things that the students learned in watching this is the importance of conversation, of dialogue, of relationships with others. I think uh, the idea that he would have been 106 yesterday <laughs> brings a lot of uh, a lot of things to mind. But the one that, that stands out is he came of age at a time where people of color, uh, obviously, opportunities were limited in many ways, but most certainly in the legal field. Correct. Have you ever considered what he had to endure to get to where he got? He had to endure a lot. He had to endure a lot. Um, you know, if you watch the documentary, you will see, you know, you know what he had to endure in certain because at that time it was, you know, there was segregation, right? There wasn't what we have today, where we have the ability to, you know, go to any school we'd like or we can go on to public, you know, accommodations. He didn't have that, so he struggled with that because he saw that that was unjust. And so, and he was a kind of person that really, um, you know, changed him. I mean, he really 
uh, I guess it was during his uh, college days because he went to Lincoln University. And if you watch the documentary, it, it he went alongside because uh, Thurgood Marshall also went to Lincoln University and others. And he really learned the importance of justice while he was there. He, he learned that it's important to advance the cause of justice. But I think when he was younger, he was really hurt. There were times where he could not go into a certain setting because of the color of his mm. skin. And that was just inconceivable to him. So he spent his life saying, no, that's that's wrong. We should be able to um, you know, get rid of these laws that would pro prohibit you know, blacks and whites and people of color and, and whites from engaging in you know, community. That's basically what it was. We weren't able to be a community because we were we had these laws that segregated us. You know, uh, when we think about the the right uh, the battle for civil rights, we think so often about the '60s and and protests and Freedom Riders, which of course are all key critical. But as we're talking about someone like Franklin Williams or Thurgood Marshall, how important also it was to get into the legal elements of things, right? Without those changes, we would be we would be back where we were 50, 60 years ago. It was important to, yeah, exactly. And um, they used the legal system to advance the cause of um, civil rights. But if you watch the documentary, you'll, you'll also see how Thurgood Marshall and Ambassador Williams, they had different thoughts about how to go about that. Really? Whereas... Um, I, you know, Thurgood Marshall was a little bit more um, cautious, right? Because he wanted to make sure, if you watch a documentary, he wanted to make sure that any case that he presented before the U.S. Supreme Court, that he was sure he was going to win that case. Because he understood that if there was a situation where he presented a case in the Supreme Court and he lost, that could, as you mentioned, push the you know, this cause backwards. Right. Whereas Franklin Williams was a little bit more like, no, we need to really push this ahead. So they had a difference of opinion, but the goal ultimately was, you know, again, to use the court system to advance um, justice. But they had a little bit of a different, you know, view of how, how to do that. Um, Thurgood Marshall was a, a, a little bit more cautious. A little more cautious. Yes. And Mr. Williams was a yeah. little more aggressive, perhaps. A little bit more aggressive, <laughs> a little bit more aggressive. But, you know, Thurgood Marshall had his view of it. And, and I think he was right, that he wanted to make sure that those cases that he presented to the U.S. Supreme Court, they would win, you know, and they would get that support from the U.S. Supreme Court. And then as opposed to maybe having a setback. Yeah, it's a fascinating way of, of presenting that because it shows that nothing's monolithic, right? You know, you know just because they're, they work together, right? right. Marshall and, and Williams work together, but differing points of view, differing yes. tactics. Correct, correct. But the one thing that both of them, I think, really um, agreed upon was the importance of, again, being a bridge figure, being a person who can connect people. And that was very important to Franklin Williams. How over, do you consider whether it's Franklin Williams, like you said, maybe at the, at the top, most people don't know. More people obviously know Thurgood Marshall, mm -hmm. of course. But is this an overlooked part of, of, of the conversation when it comes to racial justice? The, the, the people who are inside that legal community, whether they're, they're attorneys or judges or whatever, how important they are to making sure that things continue to advance. I think that it's not an overlooked part of it because okay. our commission is there 
Um, we have a new chief judge uh, who is committed to you know these issues as well. Um, not to say that the court system has um, been committed over the last 30 years and has been pushing uh, the cause, but the commission has been very good at educating, bringing awareness of these issues to the entire court system. So that's one of our, uh, part of our mission is to do that. So we will do programs throughout the state on different issues, you know, again, on uh, racism and bias, we, you know, on different issues that impact the community. We did one recently on the family courts, you know, how to become a family court judge. That's important because we want to, you know, again, we want our family courts to be strong. We want individuals to be interested in becoming a family court judge. We've done programs on, recently we did a Juneteenth program and, you know, we, again, are bringing to, to bear issues of race within the court system. You know, so we do this annually. You know, we bring awareness to different issues. So the court system is very clear, especially with Secretary Jay Johnson's report of the work that we need to do. And we do town halls. You know, our commission, we do town halls with the court community. So we're hearing from the actual court employees, what their concerns are. Earlier you mentioned, you know, hearing from litigants. We also hear from our court employees. We're gonna be having a town hall in a couple of weeks, and it's a, a virtual town hall, but the entire legal community as well as the court community comes on and asks questions of our court administrators. What are you doing to advance uh, this cause. And it's a dialogue. And that's, we definitely are clear that we need to do this work. We're talking about Franklin H. Williams in this hour of What's Next. Our guest this morning is Mary Lynn Nicholas Brewster. She's the executive director of the Franklin H. Williams Judicial Commission. We're talking about a lot of issues. We're going to get into some of those coming up. This is What's Next on WBFO. Did you know that WNED-PBS is always working on great new local shows for you to watch? Documentaries like Kleinhand's Gift to Buffalo, which tells the story of Buffalo's music hall. The hall is very intimate, and that intimacy makes everyone who comes in here feel a part of our family. Fun and educational series like Compact Science. Believe it or not, peppers are technically fruits. And Shakespeare's greatest hits featuring some of his best-known soliloquies and monologues. We are such stuff as dreams are made of. You can watch them all on our website at wned.org slash local shows. While you're there, check out the show pages and many websites for additional content such as bonus features, photo galleries, and lesson plans. Find it all at wned.org slash local shows. Do you hear that? That's the lullaby of Broadway. Join me, Anthony Chase, on a memorable trip to New York City, January 22nd through the 26th. We'll see five hit Broadway shows, Kimberly Akimbo and Juliet, Back to the Future, A Beautiful Noise, and Shocked. And we'll eat at Sardi's. Transportation, hotel, and select meals are also included. Space is limited, so don't delay. Call 716-630-3731 or visit wned.org slash travel. You're listening to What's Next, our place to discuss the important issues of our communities of Western New York and Southern Ontario. We want to hear from you. Click on the Talk to Us option in the WBFO app, and we will work to get your questions or comments on the air. Do you have a story or concern that we should be addressing? Email us using what's next at wbfo.org. 
together we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And welcome back to What's Next. Our guest this hour, Mary Lynn Nicholas Brewster, Executive Director of the Franklin H. Williams Judicial Commission. Uh, Franklin H. Williams, uh, a leader in uh, fighting for racial justice in this country and in New York State, as a matter of fact, and that's why the Judicial Commission is named, in fact, after him as well. Uh, Mary Lynn, we were going to get into some of the issues that have been raised by Secretary Johnson's report here, and we were having a little off-mic conversation about jury duty for a second. And there, and one of the great coincidences, actually, uh, I was originally not going to be here today because I was scheduled to report for jury duty today. And uh, when I made my call on Friday afternoon, uh, I was told in weird language that I was not uh, meant to, to appear and I don't have to do it for another six years. Um, uh, but anyway, my point is uh, there are concerns, though. I mean, that's something we haven't really gotten into. We've been talking about some of the other overlying issues, but uh, a jury just a sense of jury duty and why it's why it's important. I mean, I guess we could get into that easily enough, but there's there's some recommendations about this uh, in these reports. Excellent. Yes, definitely. Um, you know, one of our fundamental constitutional rights is the right to a fair and impartial jury. And, you know, part of that is having a diverse jury. I mean, you know, the, the literature is out there, the studies are out there, the importance of having diverse perspectives leading to a more just result, um, just jury verdict. So we want to encourage uh, all people to, to know about jury service, but the importance of serving on a jury. A lot of people, they see that jury um, notice and they you know, they toss it out because they, they and they try to figure out how they can get out of jury right, service. Right. But you need to hold on to it. Uh, one of our commissioners, well, two of our commissioners are actually commissioners of jurors um, for their perspective, um, respective counties. And the importance can't be overlooked or overstated. The importance of serving on a jury, um, it's, it's part of our civic duty. So one of the things that we talk a lot about at, at the commission is the importance of jury diversity. So our jury commissioners in each of the um, different counties, you know, they ensure they do outreach. Or the, the goal is to do outreach to the communities because a lot of people don't realize that they need to serve on a jury because we want different perspectives in in, in our juries. So what we have done this week, because again, the Williams Commission is here for an entire week doing a lot of programming, and one of the programs is jury outreach. Okay. So we will be doing a program on uh, Wednesday, October 25th, and it'll be discussing the importance of you know, jury service. So we will be meeting with the local community. Uh, we will be discussing, uh, it's our commissioner of jurors here in Erie County. We'll be discussing the importance of jury service and having a diverse jury ensures our constitutional right to a fair and impartial jury. What do, what do we understand though about the obstacles to uh, jury duty? One thing that, that flashes to mind how employers need to be supportive, right? I mean, I, here I can I can say this. This is total, uh, uh, I guess, uh, honesty. I mean, here at Buffalo Toronto Public Media, my supervisors were supportive of uh, of the fact that I might not be here Monday or maybe for the rest of the week, whatever the case may be. Uh, but uh, what are what do we hear offhand about some of the issues, some of the obstacles when it comes to uh, making sure that we have those diverse juries? I think there's um, sometimes it's not uh, there's a lack of an awareness of the importance of it. Um, people don't view it as an important 
you know, thing to do. They, they hear a lot about people trying to get out of jury service. They don't realize the impact they can make um, by serving on a jury. I think people just are not really clear on that. Also, sometimes you do have situations where, yes, you have a parent who may have, you know, daycare issues or they may have, you know, work issues. So there might be some issues like that. But again, you have to answer the jury summons and come in and really give it an opportunity and realize that you are making an impact by serving on a, on a jury. And I think it's a lack of, that's why we do a lot of education, um, lack of awareness of the importance. People hear about you know voting and they say, okay, yes, you have to vote, it's important to vote, your vote is your voice. They don't necessarily always hear about the importance of serving on a jury. They, they don't look at it as, as important as part of their civic duty, similar to voting. It is interesting, I guess, and maybe a, a little ironic that I think everybody has an opinion on when it comes to whatever case it might be, whether it's just or not. Yeah. But uh, nobody really looks at it from how they could have perhaps they could influence similar things in their community by serving on a jury, uh, so serving on a jury. And I think the idea is, you know, he, you know, when you serve, when you're a juror, you're hearing the case. You know, you have to have an open mind. We want jurors who are not biased, you know. We want, you know, unbiased jurors. And then, but you, along with other jurors, can come to a determination based on, you know, the law that was provided to you and, and the facts. So you're part of that process. A lot of people, you know, shy away from the judicial process or being in court. They're not familiar with it. It's not a comfortable scenario. So they kind of shy away from it as opposed to really embracing it because, you know, we've seen in the past, and again, as I mentioned, there's studies how it's important to have um, diverse perspectives. I'll mention, for example, um, Franklin Williams. He spent, you know, a lot of his um, time as an attorney arguing for jury diversity right, because right. at the time, you know, jurors could be struck because they were women or, you know, a person of color. or And so he fought against that because he knew how important it was. In fact, you know, there was a case um, called the Groveland Four, and these were four young black men in Groveland, Florida, and Franklin Williams was representing them, and they were wrongly accused of raping a white woman, and they were wrongfully convicted by an all-white jury, right? And at that time, you know, again, there were similar stories being told or happening, you know, throughout the country because, again, there were not diverse perspectives on the jury. You know, those young men were has have since been, you know, exonerated, right, Post, posthumously. Um, but, again, he was arguing for the importance of jury diversity. And so we continue to advance that cause. And so we do the jury outreach to make sure that people are aware of the need for that. As you were talking about that particular case in, in Groveland, Florida, granted, it's, an, it's historical. Mm -hmm. At the same time, uh, you know, we, you know, it doesn't seem like it's all that uncommon of a story to hear about cases being overturned, uh, DNA evidence proving that, uh, you know, Sometimes, in some cases, people uh, in prison for murder charges and DNA evidence turning them over. Just from somebody who's obviously deep inside uh, the weeds when it comes to, to, to the legal world, I mean, are, are we still off in this country when it comes to making sure that things are being played fairly across the board when it comes to our legal system? 
I think um, we're doing better, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. I think, um, you know, now that we have, you know, DNA and we have all these other things that we can, you know, maybe use that, you know, to ensure, you know, 30, 40 years ago we didn't have, you know, those similar um, technology. But I think definitely we're, we're doing better because we are understand now. I mean, we came from a time where, you know, that – you know, again, we had juries who weren't really looking at the evidence. They were looking at the person or maybe the, the person's skin color and, and saying, well, that person's guilty just because of the way they look. Now, Somebody accused, and this is what you it, couldn't be yeah, trustworthy because you, of the color, a color of your, of your skin. skin. Now, you know, where, you know, however many years later, and look, we still have bias. I mean, we, we are working with that. And one of the things that uh, Secretary Jay Johnson in his report mentioned was to address jury bias because it's not like it's over. I mean, people still have implicit bias. We all do. We all have implicit biases. So one of the things that the, the court system has done is created a jury video. So every potential juror that comes in watches a video about implicit bias and how that can impact their decision making. So they're made aware even be- before they become a juror that, you know what, we all have implicit bias. Let's make sure to, when we're reviewing the case, that we check that. We understand that that's something that everyone has. So, But before we make that decision, we step back and make sure that we're not allowing our bias to impact our decision-making. So that's still there. But I think we're, we're doing better because now we understand uh, bias. We understand that that's something, and we're trying to ensure that we have better decision making because we have more diverse juries and we're addressing bias, uh, potential bias in the jury. Uh, our guest uh, this morning is uh, Mary Lynn Nicholas Brewster, executive director of the Franklin H. Williams Judicial Commission. Uh, it's interesting. We got probably a larger, larger conversation about jury duty than I thought we could uh, in this particular program. But it's interesting that some of these other uh, recommendations or observations that uh, came out of uh, Secretary Johnson's report. Uh, what else? Well, I'm just curious off the top of my head. What about uh, things like public defenders and things like that? Is that something that, that's come up? And you know, I'm just, I can only imagine what the burden is on, on those individuals in those offices. Well, I know that within our um, you know, family court report, for example, we recommended you know, um, increased compensation for attorneys for the children, 18B attorneys. Again, there had been a long stretch before those attorneys, you know, even their you know, um, hourly fees were increased. And so what we were seeing was a lot of great attorneys that were representing our children, our families, they were leaving because they couldn't, you know, again, the, the hourly fee they were getting was a 20-year-old fee, Mm. so they couldn't afford it. So one of the recommendations we made and uh, the governor uh, signed uh, into law was that we need to increase fees for these attorneys because they're representing our most vulnerable uh, population, our children, you know, our families who are in need. So that was one of the things that, you know, we as uh, the Williams Commission thought was very um, important. So, yes, so we, we do need to support uh, those who are representing our most vulnerable population. We want to make sure that they're getting uh, not only the financial support, but other support that they need, other resources. It was interesting as you were describing that, that you said, uh, I think you used the term 18B right. attorney. What is that? Well, that's a, like that's a, a, an attorney who's a private attorney who's been um, 
you know, part of a panel who will be asked to represent families okay. as opposed to maybe other um, attorneys who might be working for different agencies, um, you know, legal aid, et cetera. So they're working for an agency. They're getting paid by that agency. Then you have, um, you know, 18B where they're, they're solo practitioner. They might be working on their own, but they get paid through the county or a court system that they're working with, but they get paid a, a set fee. And um, this is kind of a leading question, but it sounds like tremendously difficult work uh, doing that work for, the, um, I, like you said, for the most vulnerable. Yes, I think it's, it's it's and we need to honor those that work because that's important work. And again, one of the things that we as a um, commission, we again, the family court is so important because we're talking about um, the family system, right? Our families, you know, really those are the foundation of our communities. So we want to make sure that the judge, that we have enough judges for those courts to address those issues, enough attorneys representing our families and our children, and that, you know, again, we're advancing the the cause of those young, you know, those vulnerable young people who are in our, our family court system and those families. We're going to take another break and come back with our uh, final Moments uh, with uh, our guest this morning, Mary Lynn Nicholas Brewster, Executive Director of the Franklin H. Williams Judicial Commission. Still plenty to talk about. This is What's Next on WBFO. Hey, is this thing on? Test, test, one, two. Sounds great. Let's go. The podcast world is overflowing with more than 750,000 podcasts to choose from. But for great local podcasts, you can now go to one place, the new Amplify BTPM Pods app. Here, you can discover content produced in Western New York and Southern Ontario, our own backyard. With a wide variety of genres to choose from, there is something for everyone. Listen to the best independently produced podcasts in the region anywhere, anytime. Download the free Amplify BTPM Pods app wherever you get your apps and begin exploring your local podcast community now. Explore the intersection of music and mental health with Mindful Music, hosted by mental health advocate and educator Carl Shalomar. Listen to guests share how they use music to express their inner nature and manage their emotional well-being. Listen to Mindful Music on Saturdays at 4 p.m. and Sundays at 8 p.m. on WBFO. You're listening to What's Next, our place to discuss the important issues of our communities of Western New York and Southern Ontario. We want to hear from you. Click on the Talk to Us option in the WBFO app, and we will work to get your questions or comments on the air. Do you have a story or concern that we should be addressing? Email us using what's next at wbfo.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And back on What's Next, our guest, Mary Lynn Nicholas Brewster, Executive Director of the Franklin H. Williams Judicial Commission. If you're just tuning in, uh, Mr. Williams, uh, the commission is named after him for his work uh, throughout his year in the, years in the legal system, advancing racial justice. And uh, Mary Lynn uh, Nicholas Brewster here with us. It's interesting. You have a quote from him that not only is a great quote, but you say it's, it's the mission of this commission. Please read it because it's uh, it's really fascinating uh, language that he used here, please. Excellent. Yeah. Ambassador Franklin H. Williams put our charge very simply. He said, we must not stop now. We have come too far to turn back. 
a nation that has progressed because of the sweat and blood of thousands of blacks, a nation that first tolerated slavery, then outlawed it, that accepted separate but equal as a valid constitutional concept, then rejected it. A nation that has come so far must not now give up the struggle to rid itself of racism. And that was a quote from Ambassador Franklin H. Williams. And I feel that that is the charge of the Franklin H. Williams Judicial Commission. We have come too far to turn back. And granted, we're still you know, working to cross that bridge to the ultimate, you know, justice, the promised land <laughs> of, right. of racial justice. But we continue and we cannot stop. So that is our charge to be vigilant, to be diligent and committed to advancing the cause of justice. When we talk about the commission, it does sound like there is a very dedicated group of people who yeah. are giving their input, trying to make sure that a difference is being made. I'm going to ask you a little bit of an opinion, though outside of the commission. You heard from your quote, Ambassador Williams saying, we must not stop. Are there moments where you look outside and you see what's going on in the nation sometimes? And there are people who want to stop? I, I think that we have seen that there's, a, you know, there's, uh, I don't want to say people, but, you know, people or maybe entities that want to roll back some of the progress that we've made. Uh, so, but we don't want that to happen. Right. We want to continue advancing the cause of justice. But yes, you know, you'll see that, you know, in other parts of the country, maybe uh, a multicultural education is not celebrated. Like one of the things that we're tomorrow we're going to be celebrating is the importance of a multicultural education, how that's important for all children, because we need to know our culture. We need to know our full history, which is one of the reasons why we have an educational curriculum on Franklin H. Williams and on others, because there's all these hidden figures that we don't know about that have advanced the cause of civil rights. So other parts of the country may be rolling some of those things back, but we have to continue pushing forward. So even if there are people who are trying to push it back, we have to advance it forward, and we have to continue moving forward across that bridge towards ultimately uh, the land, the, you know, the promised land of racial justice. And what about the, the commission, the, the individuals on the commission? Again, obviously, you must know all of them to a certain extent. Yeah. Um, do you have that sense that these are people who are committed to this mission? Oh, they are. They are very much so. Remember, the commission members are all, they're judges, they're lawyers, they're court administrators. You know, again, they have a full-time job. Right. You know, they, got plenty as, on their plate. they have plenty <laughs> on their plate. And they're doing this in addition to what, because they are so passionate about the mission. These are individuals who have been on the commission number of years and have seen the progress over 20, 10, 20 years, 30 years, um, and want to ensure that that continues. So it's a very active commission. It's, you know, again, as I mentioned, it's over 30 years old and very well regarded within the court system as well as the court community, you know, the, the legal community. And we want to make sure that the public exactly by doing this, right. the public is aware of not only Ambassador Williams, but the work of the Williams Commission. I would encourage anyone to really go to our website. We have a website. Um, it's www.nycourts.gov slash FHW. Mm. And you will learn more about the work of the Williams Commission. 
and how we try to advance, um, you know, justice, not only in the court system, but also in our legal system. We work with um, law students who are seeking to join the legal profession. We do a lot of pipeline programs, as I mentioned earlier, with legal fellowships, internship programs, judicial mentorship programs. So we're trying to address all of these issues in different ways. And one of the really nice things about our commissioners is that they all are from different parts of the state. They, they hold different um, positions, so they can provide different perspectives, as we right. mentioned earlier, and you know, really help us to uh, address all of these issues in different ways. Can you take us inside a little bit with these conversations on this commission, like without maybe necessarily giving away uh, any kind of uh, confidentiality or anything, but just what, what the, the texture of these conversations are? Because you're talking about people, and we're not just necessarily attorneys, not necessarily all just judges. But at the same time, you know, coming from very different places, very different parts of the of the state, uh, talk about how those conversations go. Well, I, let's say, for example, you know, we have we have meetings every month. Okay. So, you know, maybe downstate there might be an issue that was raised with maybe a court interpreters. Let's say, for example, there's an issue. With, so, so we might say, well, how can we address that issue? Make sure, you know, maybe upstate there's an issue with um, court officers, right? So. People bring to bear, like their, you know, again, the experiences, what's happening in their local districts, and then we have an opportunity to talk amongst each other and see how we can address it. So that's what we do, and we see where there might be a need. Maybe we need more family court judges. Mm -hmm. Let's do a program about that. Upstate New York, you know, you'll see that there's a lack of diversity um, in in our in our judges, especially, I mean, we might have city court judges, but maybe Supreme Court judges, maybe appellate division judges. We may have a lack of diversity. How can we address that? Maybe we need to do a program. And so we've done how to become a judge. We've done that in Buffalo. We've done it in Syracuse. We've done it in um, in Rochester, in Albany. Again, because these are areas where we saw that there's a need, right? Uh, downstate, we saw, well, how do you become a, a family court judge? In New York City, it's an appointment, whereas upstate, it's elected. That's right, okay. So, well, how do you navigate that appointment process? So we did a program so that individuals who are interested in becoming a, a New York City family court judge would learn about the appointment process, how that works. So around the table, it's really where are the issues and how can we um, address that? And as I mentioned earlier, we saw uh, that we needed more diversity. Let's do a judicial mentor uh, program. And how do we go about doing that to make sure that we're connecting people with judges so that they can learn from them? So that's how that's a conversation is really how to bring about solutions right. to the concerns that are being raised. You also mentioned how uh, the commission is also working with uh, law students or trying to to right. to uh, help encourage others to go into the into yeah. the legal field. What about the diversity there? Uh, are we seeing? Uh, is there? I mean, does it does it does the New York State bar reflect the New York State population? I think we need to do better, okay. definitely. And I think we've been seeing um, a, a decrease in the number of black male students. Decrease? Decrease. Oh. 
um, attending law schools. So how can we address the lack um, or the, it seems to be a decrease in the number of, you know, young black male um, students who are attending law schools. So these are kinds of things that we've talked about. And maybe, you know, again, what are some of the barriers? I think earlier you mentioned about, well, what are some of the things might, might be barriers to people advancing, young um, people who are law students advancing through law school. So we've done a program about those kinds of issues. Um, is it the bar? You know, how do we get about that? What are the pipeline programs that could help young people? A lot of people take themselves out of the equation. They don't even um, take the LSAT or they don't, you know, say they could even do that. So what we try to do is go into the high schools and say it's possible right? I'm an attorney. You know, we'll say, okay, this person's an attorney. You know, we were there, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. You can do it too. And one of the sayings is, if you could see it, you can be it, right? So if you could see someone like you who, you know, has accomplished and become an attorney, you can as well. You know, there's no, you don't, there's no difference between you and I, you can do it as well. And I think that gives young people the encouragement, the incentive to say, look, I can also do that. And so they see someone as a mentor, right, as a role model. So we do that as well so that we make it possible because sometimes people don't even think it's possible to do that. So by doing so, we, we, Tell them, here are the steps that you would need to take in order to pursue this path towards, you know, the legal profession. And it makes it all that more attainable. Just curious, I, I'm, you're right here in front of me, and I've heard you speak eloquently here for the last hour, uh, uh, Mary Lynn. But what about for you then, your, your journey into the legal field? Did you see someone that made you think that you could do this, or did it come from another place? Um, I think, yes, I did. I saw, you you know, Thurgood Marshall. I saw Constance Baker Motley. I saw Martin Luther King. You know, I was born, you know, two weeks after his assassination. So I knew that it was possible. I saw these, you know, larger-than-life individuals that were doing this and, and were saying that, you know, we all are equal, right? We all can, you know, achieve that American dream, right? Whatever it is that we want to do, we can. As long as we put our mind to it, we put that hard work behind it, we can do it. And I also came from a family of immigrants who realized the importance of education. So with that, with my parents saying, look, you know, education is important. And with those role models saying, look, you know, you can achieve whatever it is that you want. Um, I decided I wanted to become an attorney. And, you know, again, I had that support, but I also had someone that I could look up to, right? And I knew that that was something that I could achieve as long as I worked hard. And I appreciate all the different topics that we've been able to touch in this hour. But as we're winding down here, maybe a thought to our listening audience about what the conversation should be like when it comes to the law and racial justice. What should, you know, people who are taking something away from this conversation here, and we've been talking about Franklin H. Williams, but what about, what should, what should be inside those conversations when it comes to the legal system and racial justice? I think, you know, the first part is respect 
and dignity, right? Everyone should be treated with respect and dignity. Anyone who comes through the courthouse doors, anyone who is working within the court system is entitled to be treated with respect and dignity. So that's one conversation that's very important. Uh, one of the things that the Franklin Commission did is we created what's called court user expectation and responsibility signage so that everyone who enters the courthouse can read a sign and it says this is how you are to be treated because a lot of the issues are with the treatment of individuals of color, maybe of people who are impoverished, how they are treated by the court system so they perceive the court system to be unjust. So, you know, the treatment of individuals is very important. Also, what is the goal? The goal is to make sure that we have fair decisions, right? We are imparting fair decisions. So again, how do we get to that? To, in order to get to that, we need different perspectives, right? In order to achieve justice that will, again, be recognized by all. And I think that that perception is very important, the perception of justice. Our guest has been Mary Lynn Nicholas Brewster, Executive Director of the Franklin H. Williams Judicial Commission. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. This has been What's Next on WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR station.